Growth Igniters Radio, Episode 41, Disrupt Yourself, a powerful idea for succeeding in unexpected ways. This episode is brought to you by Business Advancement Incorporated, enabling successful leaders and companies to accelerate to their next level of growth on the web at businessadvance.com. And now, here's Pam and Scott. Thanks, Chris. I'm Pam Harper, founding partner and CEO of Business Advancement Incorporated. And I am joined, as always, by my business partner and husband, Scott Harper. Hi, Scott. Hi, Pam. And it's always a delight to join you for another episode of Growth Igniters Radio. And if this is your first time listening, our purpose is to spark new insights, inspiration, and immediately useful ideas for leaders to take themselves and their companies to their next level of success. So Pam, our topic today is to disrupt yourself? Yes. And as you'll remember, in episode 40, our holiday book pairings for Accelerating Success in 2016, we discussed that to continue growth and success in the new year, it's essential for leaders to embrace, not just accept, the inevitability of uncertainty in the business environment. Right. And this was the context for our recommendations for books. Sure. And one of the books we recommended was Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work. Right. Well, today we're going to dig deeper into that topic of personal disruption, and we are delighted to have Whitney Johnson, the author of Disrupt Yourself, join us today. Just a bit about Whitney. She is the leading thinker on driving innovation through personal disruption. And she co-founded Rose Park Advisors, a boutique investment firm with Clayton Christensen, mm -hmm. and was an institutional investor-ranked analyst for eight consecutive years, including at Merrill Lynch. She's a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review and is also author of the book Dare, Dream, and Do, which came out in 2012. Whitney has been widely recognized for her contributions, including being named a Future Thinker finalist by Management Thinkers 50 in 2013, and was one of Fortune's 55 Most Influential Women on Twitter in 2014. Whitney is also the co-founder of the 40 Over 40 list, recognizing women who are reinventing, disrupting, and making an impact. And you can see Whitney's full bio by going to growthignitersradio.com, episode 41. Whitney, welcome to Growth Igniters Radio. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. We are so excited to uh, have the author of this book uh, with us. Disrupt Yourself is such an interesting title, and you came to this with a very interesting journey of your own. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what prompted you to write Disrupt Yourself? Yes, absolutely. Well, in 2005, so about a decade ago, I was working on Wall Street and covering stocks where I would issue a buy or sell recommendation on stocks in Latin America. And I was very much at the top of my game. And one day I announced to a friend that I was going to quit my job. And she looked at me and said, you know, with concern in her voice and her face, are you sure you know what you're doing? But I am confident that she was thinking I had lost my mind. Absolutely. Are you nuts? Completely. Exactly. <laughs> and so um, because she knew that getting to this place of power and respect had been really hard won. I had started out about 15 years earlier as a secretary working for a retail sales broker and worked my way up from secretary to investment banker to equity analyst and, and had achieved a, a certain level of success. What I didn't realize at the time, but I have since come to learn 
learn is that when I walked onto Wall Street through a secretarial side door, and then again, when I walked off of Wall Street to become an entrepreneur, I was a disruptor. Um, Mm -hmm. About that time, I had discovered disruption because I had come across Clayton Christensen and his work, and it helped me understand what I was seeing with wireless completely upending the wireline telephony. And as I read his book, The Innovator's Dilemma, and this is around 2004, it occurred to me that in fact, um, these frameworks apply to individuals, not just to companies and countries. And in applying those to individuals, it also meant that they applied to me. And then if there were some things that I wanted to get done in my career, if I was going to get those things done, I was going to need to disrupt myself and leave my current post. And so that's how I came to this somewhat circuitous, but in in many ways, very direct. Okay. So how do you define personal disruption? What is it and and how does it get you to that discontinuous next level of success in unexpected ways? So let me start with the basic definition of disruption. Disruptive innovation is a low-end or new market innovation. Think Amazon in the 90s that starts out very much at the low end of the market. Its, its position is very weak. It's inferior initially. Um, and the uh, the incumbents, like a Barnes & Noble or Borders, could have squashed them, really, like a cockroach, but they didn't because they don't bother. And then eventually, by the time it did make sense to crush them, it was really too late. Well, when it comes to personal disruption, what that means is you apply that principle, but to yourself as an individual. So you start okay. at the low end, of the ladder, you climb to the top of the ladder, and then you jump off to a new ladder. So for you, then it was starting as a secretary on Wall Street, and then somehow or other leveraging your way up into being a trader and up from there. Correct. And then once I was at the top of my game, I jumped off that ladder, and then onto a new ladder to become an entrepreneur. And so that's that moment where you either are starting at the low end, or you're at the top, and you're jumping off to do something different, that's the moment in which you're disrupting yourself. Well, that jumping off sounds uh, a little intimidating. And it's a challenge all by itself. What would you say are some of the biggest challenges that, say, companies or (laughs) certainly individuals face when they're trying to disrupt? Well, you've already started to allude to it. I think there are two challenges, and one of them is you're scared um, because, as you just noted, there's somewhat of a free fall involved when you're jumping off one ladder onto another ladder or jumping off of one wave to surf a new wave. And I Mm -hmm. think the other thing that keeps people from doing this is they're really comfortable. Um, It feels pretty good to be at the top of the ladder. And why on earth would I jump off the ladder when I've got all the prestige and stature and monetary um, sort of what I want at this point, why would I try something new? Okay, so, so why? why would you? <laughs> She's got, and I think alike. <laughs> hmm, maybe you're married or something. Um, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So I, I would say that the reason that you do is that human progress or forward progress is very much an imperative and that it actually feels good to disrupt yourself, believe it or not. Um, whenever we try something new, we're thinking of ourselves as not who we are, but who we, we could become. We're moving from stuck to unstuck. And whenever you try something new, your brain gets the squirt of dopamine, which is this neurotransmitter that actually makes you feel good. So when you disrupt yourself, even though it feels like 
you're going to feel more comfortable staying where you are. Um, In fact, you're going to be happier if you're willing to jump to something new. And so that's why you end up doing it. And in fact, if you are disrupting yourself, you're preempting other people disrupting you, which is even more uncomfortable. So you're taking more control of your career. Yeah. You're taking more control of your life and truth. So the idea then is that the more that we can think about the fact that we're going to take control of ourselves by disrupting ourselves, there could be some success in unexpected ways. But first, it takes understanding what's involved. And we're going to talk about learning curves when we come back. We're going to take a quick break now and speak more with Whitney Johnson, author of Disrupt Yourself, in just a moment. Stay with us. You're listening to Growth Igniters Radio with Pam Harper and Scott Harper, brought to you by Business Advancement Incorporated, on the web at businessadvance.com. We enable successful companies to accelerate to their next level of innovation and growth. And if you like what you're hearing, spread the good word. Go to growthignitersradio.com, select episode 41, and use the share links for Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at the top right of the page to tell your social media communities all about us. Use hashtag growthigniters. This will help extend our reach to all of the people who can benefit from this series. Welcome back to Growth Igniters Radio with Pam Harper, that's me, and Scott Harper. Scott and I are talking today with Whitney Johnson, author of Disrupt Yourself, about harnessing the power and unpredictability of disruptive innovation to succeed in unexpected ways. Whitney, can you tell us how can people reach you? How can they learn more about the book? Well, the best place to start is to go to my website, WhitneyJohnson.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at Johnson Whitney. And then you can learn more about the book at Disrupt Yourself Book or go to Amazon or any other online or actually offline retailer and purchase the book. And in addition to all of that, we will also have links on episode 41 for GrowthIgnitersRadio.com. So it works out really well. In our first segment of this episode, we were talking with Whitney about the importance of being willing to take that leap of faith, in a sense, and to disrupt yourself because it feels good and it's good for you, (laughs) Uh, I would say. Like chicken soup. (laughs) Better than that. (laughs) But there's, of course, much more to it. And one of the things that you talk quite a bit about is the S-curve. Can you tell us what is the S-curve and how can companies and individuals use it to understand what you're talking about as personal disruption? Yep. So the S-curve was developed by E.M. Rogers in 1962, and the initial purpose of it was to help understand how ideas or uh, spread throughout um, throughout a system, throughout a population, etc. And so Mm -hmm. if you think about the way it works is that at the bottom of the S-curve, initially progress is really, really slow. And then once you reach this tipping point, which is typically 10 to 15% of the population, then you enter into hypergrowth. And that's the sleek, steep back of the curve. And then at the top of the curve, which is your saturation or 90%, growth begins to taper off. Now, the reason that the S-curve is so helpful to us in thinking about personal disruption is because if you think about it at the low end, it looks like nothing is happening. 
happening. Then you've got this period on the back of the curve where it seems like you don't need to do anything and then growth is exploding. It's exponential. Mm -hmm. And then at the top of the curve, it slows down. So the S-curve helps us deal with the time delays of disruption and it helps us understand the psychology of disruption. It helps you understand that when you're trying something new, even though intellectually you know that it's going to feel good eventually, it looks like you're getting absolutely nothing done because you're building up momentum still. And so that helps you avoid discouragement. Then as you put in the time, as you put into the practice, you're going to accelerate into competence, which if you're trying a new job or a new role, it's typically around six months then you're going to feel confident. That's the sweet spot of the S-curve. That's when all your synapses are firing, you're learning, and you feel productive. And then at the top of the curve, everything's easy. But because it's so easy, you're not having as many dopamine squirts and boredom can kick in. And so if at this point you don't jump to a new curve, that plateau that you think is so comfortable can actually become a precipice. And so if you can learn to surf these waves of learning and mastering and figuring out how to do that quickly, then you're going to have more fun or have a happier life, but also be more successful and have a competitive advantage in an era where we've got accelerating disruption. The thing that you said that is very important, I mean, all of it is, but that initial jump where you can't see things happening. The uh, lag phase. The lag phase. Uh, that's an area where I think there's a lot of challenge because people don't know if they're really making progress. How can they know? Yeah, I would say a couple of things. The first is just to know that you're not going to know. Um, so that's helpful. Um, and then um, I've identified seven variables that allow you to accelerate up the curve. And I think there are a couple of things that you can look for that will help you think, okay, am I on the right curve for right. me. There may be a problem that needs to be solved, but am I the right person to solve it? So the first is to take the right kinds of risks. So as you're jumping to a new curve, you may think, I want to pursue this opportunity because I know there's a there's a market there. I know there's customers. I know there's a job available to me, et cetera. But the fact is, is that you're much better off going after market risk where you don't know if there are customers um, and But if there is a market, the market will be yours for the taking. And so you're taking on market versus competitive risk. In fact, market risk is less risky. And the odds of success based on the research and innovator's dilemma is that you're six times more likely to be successful and you're going to have a 20 times higher revenue opportunity. So that's right. the first thing is to look for the market risk. And the second thing I would say is if you are on a curve that is not allowing you to play to your distinctive strengths, it's probably not the right curve. You want to be iterating to figure out what that is. Um, and so your distinctive strengths are what you do well that other people in your sphere do not. And then the third thing I would say to figure out quickly if it's the wrong or the right curve is to impose really clear constraints so that you can get lots of feedback and get it really quickly because that feedback is giving you information and you'll be able to know at a much lower cost in terms of time and resources if it's the wrong or the right curve. Okay, so this is what you call the power of working within limits, is that right? Correct. So how does working within constraints benefit? Can you expand on that? It seems like that would be something that counterintuitive. Work, right. Yeah. yeah, it is it is counterintuitive, isn't it? Because we have in our lexicon, if only I had, right? If I only yeah. had land, more time, more space, then I could get 
you know, XYZ magical thing done. Well, if you think about whenever you're trying something new, you need feedback. It's like a child learning to walk. They're getting lots of feedback. How is it working? And it's the same for us. And so the best way to get that feedback is to have constraint so that you have something to bump up against. So like think Uh. about a skateboarder. Skateboarders are some of the quickest learners in the world because they receive incredibly fast and useful feedback. And so it's the same with us. And I'll give you a more specific example, which is there was a study done by Entrepreneur Magazine in 2007. They compiled 500 fastest growing companies in the United States. What was interesting about that study is how those companies funded themselves. They all, 61% were profitable within one year, but only 28% had access to debt only 18% had access to equity, and only 4% had access to venture capital. So what we know from that data is that at least 50% and as much as 72% of these companies had no access to outside capital. And so the question becomes, were they successful in spite of or because of their constraints? Hmm. And so for me, as I think about constraints, I've really, they're, they're inevitable, first of all, so it's probably better if we figure out how to live with them. But in fact, for an innovator, a constraint, it's not a check on absolute freedom, it's actually a tool of creation. I think the other thing is that we've seen ourselves when we are working with a company and they are pushed up against the limit, that they do inevitably find a way to come up with something that they hadn't thought of before, putting it in the light that you're talking about really does explain why. Yeah, it's super counterintuitive. But it, it, it really works. it really is. So let's talk more about counterintuitive because you talk about a number of things in your book. One of the things that I think is also important is the inevitability of missteps when you're walking into the unknown. And yet so many top leaders are conditioned failure is not an option. So How can we use these elements of disruption to reconcile that paradox and recover faster? I would say there are a couple of things we can do. Um, Number one is this building on this idea of constraints that we just discussed is that if you yourself are imposing the constraints, then you're building an experiment. So you remove this idea of failure from being something about you. So it's just this experiment we're trying. It's this object away and apart from me. And so I think that as you choose to impose the constraints, sort of this, again, this idea, disrupt yourself before you're disrupted, I think that can make a difference. So you depersonalize it. You depersonalize it. But the bigger real question I think that you're asking is, we celebrate failure, but the truth is we all feel a little bit ashamed by it. And the reason that we feel ashamed by it is that in our society, um, certainly in the Western society, from the time that we are very young, our identity is tied to our achievements. They're, they're inextricably linked. And so you achieve, you know, one for identity. You don't achieve, you know, minus one for identity. And so whenever we fail and it feels it all personal, then it's somehow like our fundamental sense of self has been subtracted. And so Mm -hmm. I think one of the best things that we can do is be aware that that's happening and understand that if if we make the failure a referendum on us, we can't learn the important things that we need to learn about this thing not working. So I think the take home there is really to be aware that we tie our success and failure to our net worth and practice not doing it and then set up situations and contexts where the experiment is separate from the individual. 
Mm-hmm. So okay. it failed instead of I, I failed. failed. Right. Correct. You know. Correct. And you have to be sincere about that rather than uh, some companies say, well, we celebrate failure, but no, they don't. <laughs> no, they, no don't. they don't. You, well, you have to yeah. really embrace it and say, yeah, it failed, but that's an experiment. And being a researcher, I know all about failed experiments. And yet, if you keep going, you learn so much and you can really do more. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think you as a scientist are especially equipped to put in practice this notion, right? It's 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 experimentation over and over Absolutely. again. So the more that we're embracing our constraints and we're using failure as a way to learn, and to master that learning curve, depersonalizing it and making it actually just information, the more that we're going to be able to go up the learning curve and uh, continue to disrupt ourselves and grow. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk more with Whitney Johnson, author of Disrupt Yourself, about some immediately useful ideas for disrupting yourself and getting to that next level of success. Stay with us. So Pam, since we're discussing dealing with uncertainty and increasing success, how does your own book, Preventing Strategic Gridlock, fit into this theme? Actually, it's quite relevant whether you're talking about business or personal success. Strategic gridlock is the name I gave to the mysterious stalls that often happen when successful organizations are under intense pressure to transform and grow. Leaders have told me that preventing strategic gridlock helped them to think more strategically about how to head off the stalls, unlock more of their organization's potential, and make big things happen, regardless of the uncertainty they faced. Okay. So buy your own copy of Preventing Strategic Gridlock today on Amazon.com. And be sure to take advantage of our holiday offer for a 15-minute Pick Our Brains call, where we'll focus on a leadership issue that's most important to you. Go to growthignitersradio.com, select episode 41, and scroll down to resources for more information. Welcome back to Growth Igniters Radio with Pam Harper and Scott Harper. Over the last two segments, Scott and I have been speaking with Whitney Johnson, author of Disrupt Yourself, about daring to follow your own disruptive path to succeed in unexpected ways. Whitney, how can people buy your book? First of all, you can go to Amazon.com or you can go to Barnes & Noble. So anywhere online, pretty much anywhere, actually. Um, you can go to Audible.com or to your local bookstore. So thank you for asking. And uh, we really recommend it. This book is so powerful. So let's go back to our discussion. This is the point where we talk about things that as soon as our listeners are done with this episode that they could go out and do. Well, the second variable that really will allow you to move up the curve quickly is to play to your distinctive strengths, um, which is, again, this idea of doing what you do well that others in your sphere do not. Distinctive strengths are usually pretty easy to figure out because they make you a fish out of water. The more baseline query that people have is, well, what are my strengths in the first place? And so one immediate question I would ask or tip is think about the last compliment you actually dismissed. Like someone gave it to you and you just like shrugged it off. And so the reason I want you to consider that is that our strengths tend to be something that we do reflexively well, so well that we just overlook them. Um, uh, Malcolm Forbes said people tend to undervalue what they are and overvalue what they aren't. And so if you're Mm. getting this compliment so many 
many times. You're not being coy. You just, for you, it's as natural as breathing. And you just think, why are they complimenting me on this? Well, in fact, that strength is very likely your superpower. And in fact, your superpowers may not be on your website. They may not be on your resume because you overlooked them. So that would be the first thing. Okay. So just as an example, I mean, for yourself, you went from secretary to, uh, high ranked trader. That's right. So what was it that you identified as your strength that enabled Mm -hmm. you to make that leap? Great question. So in any discipline, there's almost always what I call pay to play skills. So things that allow you to, um, to basically, you know, your price of entry. So as an, as an equity analyst covering stocks, my pay to play skills where I needed to build a financial model, I needed to be able to, uh, you know, determine the valuation of a stock. So those were pay to play things that I had to do, and I did them well. Um, So they got me the price of entry. But my distinctive strengths were is that I could connect dots. And by connecting dots, by putting people together and ideas together, that made me a good stock picker. And it also allowed me to connect investors with CEOs of companies, etc. And the reason that it's, it's important to be aware of is I remember a number of times people saying to me, well, you're really good at connecting or thinking across silos. And I remember thinking, I'm not good at that. Or I don't want you to tell me I'm good at that. I want you to tell me I'm good at building a financial model because I'd worked really hard to learn to build a financial model. I hadn't worked hard at all to be able to look across silos. And so the thing that made me, that moved me to the top of the heap as an equity analyst was not that I had the best model or the best earnings estimates. It was the fact that I had those things as a foundation, but then I played to my distinctive strengths, which was the ability to look across silos and make connections. So the more that you were willing to think expansively about what you were good at, the more you were able to recognize this. Right. And I would say to anyone who's listening, the more you are willing to own those things that you do really well, and you actually dismiss and sort of undervalue, the more you're willing to own those, the more successful you're going to be. Makes sense. So Whitney, what's a second piece of practical, actionable advice that we can give people? I would say uh, to think about your biggest accomplishment to date. um, And this would go to the idea of embracing constraints, because almost always, almost always, one of your major accomplishments in life has been surmounting a huge, probably unexpected, even undeserved obstacle, whether it was your upbringing, your health challenges, financial circumstances, relationship woes, whatever. And once you got over that, if only I had, you allowed your obstacles to become a tool of creation. And so what I would say to you is look at that biggest accomplishment to date, analyze it, and see how you turned that constraint into a tool of something that's quite remarkable because now you consider it one of your biggest accomplishments. And if you can tap into that, then you're going to be able to move up your learning curve more quickly and then the more of a competitive advantage you'll have in the marketplace. Okay. So what would be the third tip that you would give? So the third, I would say to think about the last time that you were scared and lonely and, um, and then give yourself a high five, uh, because (laughs) whenever you're disrupting, you're basically playing where no one else is playing. Um, and so, when you're scared to try something new, it probably means that it matters to you. And it also could very well mean that you're on the right path to disruption because there's no one else there yet. And so I think that if you can look at those times when you do feel scared or look at those times when you do feel lonely, it could be a really important clue that you're on 
on the path to doing something, you know, remarkable and meaningful. So that would be my third suggestion. And really uh, being able to visualize perhaps a time where you have overcome. So I did overcome. I can overcome this. It creates a, a greater sense of power and sort of counteracts that sense of discouragement and maybe I don't want to do this anymore. Whitney, this has been so interesting and so helpful. Any final thoughts as far as disrupting yourself and finding success in unexpected ways? Um, when you're willing to go after, you know, play where no one else is playing, unexpected things happen and you'll see, you know, money, stature and happiness generally follow. The final thing I would say is that going back to our very initial question is if this is so scary, you know, why do you do it? And I would say, you know, you've got to figure out what your dreams are. You've got to allow your people that work for you to bring their dreams to work. Because when we're dreaming, we're hungering for a better life. When we're dreaming, we become problem solvers. We let nothing stand in our way. And dreaming, to me, is really the engine of disruption. And so I think it's important as we're thinking sort of with our, our logical left brain of disruption and, and you know execution that we allow ourselves and the people who work for us to also have their dreams. Because when they do dream, they're going to not only um, be willing to jump off the curve and move from that comfortable place, but, but want to and, and get over the fear of doing it. Dreaming really is the engine of disruption. Whitney, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Whitney, and thanks to you out there for listening to Growth Igniters Radio with Pam Harper and Scott Harper. To check out resources related to today's conversation, share on social media, find out about upcoming episodes, or open a conversation with us, go to growthignitersradio.com and select episode 41. Until next time, this is Pam Harper and Scott Harper wishing you continued success and leaving you with this question to discuss with your team. So what are my dreams? What am I going to personally and what can we as a company do to master each level of that S-curve to succeed in unexpected ways? Growth Igniters and Growth Igniters Radio are service marks of Business Advancement Incorporated. All Growth Igniters Radio episodes are copyrighted productions of Business Advancement Incorporated, intended for the private use of our audience. Except as otherwise provided by copyright law, all other uses, including copying, editing, redistribution, and publication without prior written consent of Business Advancement Incorporated, are prohibited. All rights reserved.